good to see you guys. Man, you guys are all smiles, and it's a great day. Man, what a good morning to be here. Um, I'm curious, anybody ever stumbled upon treasure before, something of value, maybe not looking for it, maybe were, but you found some. What'd you find, Harold? Your wife. Your wife. Oh, well. Let's pray. <laughs> Harold's killing me. Now nobody's going to say anything. <laughs> oh, anybody else find something? Maybe not a person. <laughs> a great violin in a garage sale. Oh, great what? Violin. Violin in a garage sale. Okay. Grandma and Grandpa find money at Valair Ballroom when they go walking. Just oh. Okay. <laughs> so good to know. Walks at Valair Ballroom. And she gets Oh, well, as long as you're tithing on it, we're good, so. <laughs> Anybody else? I, 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 this is one of these moment, pastoral moments that I really wish I had a wonderful self-story to tell, right? Like, you know, like you, I, was, I, was at a, I was at a garage sale, and I paid a dollar for a violin that turned out to be a Stradivarius, you know, three, you know, you know what I'm saying? And you, you, I want one of those stories so bad, but I... I don't have one. Sorry. I'm just a huge disappointment when it comes to finding things of value. Also this church. Oh, this church. Well, thank finding you. We'll, yes, church. finding this church. Also a big church. We'll take because that one. We'll take that one, too. here on, my, on Mother's Day. Oh, nice. I came with her. Um, yeah. So we find some things of value. That's awesome. Yeah. I was looking at this, thinking if there were other things like people had stumbled upon or whatever found a story about three roommates that found a, a sofa at a Salvation Army thrift store. They paid uh, 20 bucks for it, and when they got home, they noticed that the cushions looked weird. One of the cushions looked weird. And they opened it, and they found an envelope with $40,000 in cash. Um, yeah, but then they also, as they kept looking, here's the great part of this story. They also found a deposit ticket with a person's name on it. And they tracked down the person who was a 90-year-old woman. And they returned her money to them. See, look, lovely story, right? That's so good. Um, or about this person who uh, went to a, a flea market in Pennsylvania. And he found this really sad-looking picture, but it had a beautiful frame on it. And he paid $4 for it at a flea market. And then he gets it home, and he takes the picture out. And he finds behind the picture an original copy from 1770 whatever of the Declaration of Independence. Yes, it was sold at auction at Sotheby's later for $2.4 million. That's a pretty good investment. Now, you guys know I'm originally Arkansan, right? I'm an Iowa transplant, you know, but um, you, did you know that one of the claims to fame for Arkansas is we have like the only open diamond field to the public where you can actually go and search for diamonds in this place called the Crater of Diamonds State Park, 15 miles from where I was born. Yes, in South Arkansas. And here's what's crazy. An average of one to two diamonds are found every day. Yeah. Oh yeah. Good reaction there, Keegan. She's like, Why, what? Yeah. In fact, March 4th of this year, a man found a 3.29 carat brown diamond there. It was, uh, but the largest diamond ever discovered was like in the 20s, I think, and it was a 40 carat diamond that was cut up and is now, pieces of it are now in the Smithsonian in their gem and mineral collection. So isn't that crazy? You know, I, I wish I had this story. I I've, I've, don't think I've ever been to the Crater of Diamonds State Park, even though it was where I was born. I know, isn't that crazy? 
Um, I don't have that story. I don't have the story of finding something crazy like that. I, I, I long to be Nicolas Cage in the National Treasure movies, you know, stumbling upon the room where all the treasure is. But for most of us, it doesn't happen. And you're probably thinking, what in the world does this have to do with anything, Brent? Well, we're talking about heaven on earth, right? And what, you know, we're trying to figure out what did Jesus mean when he said, your kingdom come, your will be done. That's what we're supposed to be praying. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. What are we talking about? Well, in the New Testament, we find Jesus, and he makes a lot of statements, and sometimes he makes it very easy for us, because he'll make a statement like this, the kingdom of heaven is like, and then he begins to tell a story, and today I want us to look at a few of these things that Jesus said to dig into and maybe see how they tie into finding this treasure that we may, not have, may have been looking for or may not have. Um, but if we go to Matthew chapter 13, what we find is here in this is two short verses with some incredible depth to them. Jesus has been speaking to a crowd. Now, for whatever reason, Jesus loved to speak in parables. A parable is kind of an extended metaphor. It's uh, like a fable, a, a story with a point. We have to be careful with these because what we like to do is we like to assign a, a value to everything in the story. doesn't work like that. Usually a parable has one or maybe two points. That's it. And they break down at some level. You cannot carry them all the way to the end and say, well, this is, doesn't work like that. And so... When Jesus spoke back then in parables, those people also needed help like we do to try to understand what in the world are you talking about, Jesus? And so Jesus often would take his disciples away and say, well, let me tell you, here's what this meant. When we look at the parables, we have to remember, too, they're not meant to be taken literally. It's not a literal thing. It's a point or two, and that's it. And so where Jesus is speaking to his disciples in this story and he's explaining the meaning of some parables he's, he's told them. But then he continues to teach. Listen to what he says. Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy, he went and sold all that he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and he bought it. What's that mean? That's interesting, right? Powerful. Matthew loves to tell parables in pairs, coming at the same story, same meaning, just from different perspectives. But if we're not careful here, we'd come away going, oh, well, this one's easy. Jesus says that the kingdom of heaven is like treasure. Not so fast. Because the kingdom of heaven is like the rest of that story. We don't just pick one thing out. So what is Jesus saying? He's leading us to see this entire story as something very significant. So let's break it down. Here's how it goes. The first one, the first parable, we find a man who seemingly seems to be minding his own business. We don't know what he's doing in a field. We don't know why he's there. It's not his field. Is he trespassing? We don't know. But he's just out, and then he stumbles upon a buried treasure. Somebody finds it, you know. And this, and this may seem far-fetched for us. Any of you have valuables, jewels buried in your backyard? Good for you not to tell us if you do, because then we'd all be over at your house. No, this was very common. Banking system was different. They didn't, you know, trust these things. Uh, with the political climate, with people coming in and raiding your country, the last thing you would do is kind of trust the banks or even trust having things out. So what would you do? You'd go bury it in the yard, because that was safer than anything else. And that's the story. People in Jesus' time would have heard that, and they, some of them would have probably thought, oh, yeah, I got that thing buried in my backyard, too. 
And so this guy finds this treasure. He realized that he's uncovered something of incredible value, more valuable to him than anything he currently owns. Now, that's a key here. What he finds is more valuable than anything he owns, more valuable than any of his cars, his houses, his job, anything. Everything is secondary to what he has discovered. Why do we know? Because he goes and he liquidates everything. All his worldly possessions, everything he owns, he gets rid of so that he can get enough cash to go buy this field and finders keepers, right? And that's the law back then too. Once he buys the field, anything in the field is his and he gets the treasure. When I read that, I had the question, it just makes me wonder, what did he see in that treasure? What kind of treasure was it? What was it there that was so important that he was willing to upend his entire life to get it? It's got to be something that we can bear. I mean, think about that for just a moment. What in your life are you willing to reorient everything, to sell everything in order to get Is it a long list or a short list? My list is pretty short. I mean, there's a lot of things that are very important to me. And I'm trying to imagine what is it that I could stumble upon that that I would be willing to just go, all that is garbage compared to this right here. That's what Jesus is telling us here in this parable. He goes into the second parable here. And this time we have a merchant. Now, this guy doesn't stumble across it, but he's searching. He's actively searching for treasure. And so he's looking to find things of value and sell them. He's on the hunt far and wide, and eventually he finds it. And Jesus says, this is a pearl. Now, for us, pearls don't really probably mean much unless you have a pearl necklace or something that, or pearl earrings that your family has passed down generationally. We kind of see pearls as less than some other jewelry, right? I mean, we don't hold them up. But in Jesus' day, pearls were some of the most valuable objects in existence. In fact, as I was studying this week, um, it was reported that Cleopatra had a pearl that was worth $4 million. I mean, that's pretty good, right? And often when people would tell stories, they would use pearls to describe something of great value, of of supreme worth. So this man's looking for it. He finds it. And what does he do? What does this guy do? He does exactly what the first guy does, doesn't he? He sells everything, everything. All that he owned paled in comparison to this one thing that he was looking to get. And you know what's so fascinating? At least what we see is to both of these individuals, the sacrifice was worth it. It was worth giving everything up. So what's the point of these parables? Hopefully you see it. It's the, Jesus is saying the kingdom, and the kingdom is valuable. It's priceless. It's worth more than anything else we could hope to acquire. And when we experience it, it is worth sacrificing everything for. It's worth reorienting our lives for to get it and to be a part of it. Now, I don't know about you, but I struggle with that statement. I say it because that's what pastors do, right? It's a great point. That's the point of the parable. But as I think about that, I go, yeah, but how willing am I to do that? Anybody else there? Are you guys all more spiritual than me? It's okay if you are. (laughs) 
It's hard, isn't it? Why is it hard? What makes this so challenging? I mean, the question is, we come to, is, is the kingdom really worth giving up everything for? Is the kingdom worth it? And we have to admit that when we say this, we're not talking about church service. We're not talking about, you know, all these things that maybe we have packaged into this religious thing. We are talking about Jesus himself. We're talking about his way, his teachings, his way of living, his priorities, his passion. That's what we're describing here. Do we really see that worth giving everything for? And I'm just going to say, I think we know the answer. We know the right answer. We know the church Sunday school answer. Yes. Sometimes. And why is it so stinking hard to live out? I think there's some reasons. As I was thinking this week, I thought, oh, there's some problems here. You know, for me, it hits me square between the eyes because it's, I don't like that question. What really am I willing to go all in for? What are you really willing to go all in for? You see, I think we have a problem of going all in because we hear the tragic stories, right? We hear the tragic stories like Bernie Madoff and how many people, billions of dollars he swindled or FTX and the, the, you know, the unscrupulous people who rob and steal and live luxurious lifestyles, leaving other people just holding the bag. I was doing research and I thought, you know, what else is going all in? Marriage. Can I get an amen? Amen. Amen. And do you know that the studies have shown that marriage has declined 60% in the last 50 years? Why go all in and commit when you can keep your options open? And to be fair, conventional wisdom tells you, don't put all your eggs in one basket. Anybody got saving for retirement? How's that diversification in that portfolio? I mean, that's important, right? I mean, that's what we're told. You don't, don't, you, you got to do these things. But while that may be good advice for financial portfolios, it's really sucky advice for relationships. Don't believe me? Look at your spouse right now and say, hmm, I'm thinking I want some other options. I'll be in my office after service to counsel you. But it also doesn't work in following Jesus. We want it to. Man, do we want it to. We want to just take our lives and we want to just sprinkle a little Jesus dust on it so that we can fly whenever we want to. But please don't make too many demands of me. And yet Jesus is showing us something here. He's saying, look, it's all in. It's all in. That's why when you look at Jesus and his ministry, man, he starts off with a bang. I mean, he's turning water to wine and everybody's like, "Woo! yes, that's my man. And then in the end, he's saying things like, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can have no part of me. And they're like, whoa, yeah, whoa, you need to calm down a little bit, Jesus. That got a real, real serious, a little too fast. And what does it tell us? That the crowd started leaving. It's one of my favorite passages because that's when Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, will you leave me too? And Peter, Mr. Foot in his mouth, first to respond, says, where will we go? 
What will we do? You are the one who has the words of eternal life. You are the one. They had seen it. They had tasted it. They had experienced it. It wasn't perfect because we still had the crucifixion and the abandonment and all that. But when they saw it, they were there. And they knew that, you know what? It's worth my career. It's worth my life. It's worth everything for me to be following Jesus. How many things are we really willing to go all in for? Not many. I think there's another problem, too. I think there's a problem of perception. There's a problem of perception. What do I mean by that? No, first off, it just begins with this. We see everything else as more valuable than following Jesus. We see everything else as being more important, more worth giving our lives for. The counterfeits, the things that we run after, those are the things that we're, you know, willing to give ourselves to. And what do we find time and time and time and time and time again? We are found wanting and disappointing. And then if we're not careful, who do we blame for this? We blame God. And this is a problem of perception because the perception is, well, look at what I have to give up. That was never these guys' mentality in the parables, was it? Ooh, I'm sacrificing a lot. That, that wasn't it. In these parables, to these guys, the sacrifice was missing out on the treasure. That's the sacrifice, and yet somehow we've reversed it. I don't want to give that up, and we don't, we don't see we're missing that, the treasure, the kingdom. Why is it that everything else feels like a sacrifice to give up, but Jesus often seems expendable? If COVID taught me anything, it's just how dispendable Jesus really was. And to be fair, I take a lot of blame because we, the church in general, have so sterilized faith, we emasculated the Spirit of God, we removed anything that remotely looks spiritual or transcendent, it's any wonder that any of us get out of bed on Sunday morning when you have such a sterile faith. And even if we try to make it something else, look at the words of Jesus. Look at the words of the early disciples, those first century Christians. They gave their lives. They gave everything for this. They were martyrs. And they didn't die for a church service. <laughs> and when they were persecuted... They didn't look and go, oh, woe is me. My life is horrible. You know what they said? They said, well, this is good because I am worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. Wow. A blessing to be considered worthy of suffering for Jesus. And they didn't suffer because they were jerks. It, it was because they were following the way of Jesus like Amy was talking about last week. They were countercultural. Because the way they lived, you know what it did? It revealed the selfishness. It revealed the power hungriness. It revealed the greed. It revealed the corruption. It revealed the injustice of their world. And it even claimed, it even revealed the injustice of those who claimed to be on the side of God but weren't. They laid down their, their lives for the opportunity to live the way Jesus lived and considered that a great thing. There's another problem too, <laughs> not just perception, but I'd call it instant gratification. Man, we have that problem, don't we? 
were kind of like Willy Wonka. Anybody remember that? Veruca Salt. <laughs> I want an Oompa Loompa and I want it now. <laughs> That's how we live in our faith, isn't it? A little bit before these parables we read in Matthew 13, Jesus tells another parable and he says this. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which a man took and planted in his field, though it's the smallest of all seeds. When it grows, it's the largest of garden plants, and it becomes a tree, so that the birds come and perch in its branches. He told them another parable, pears. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into 60 pounds of flour until it worked all through the dough. You know the problem with seeds? They take time. They take time. Some varieties of mustard seed take 85, 95 days to reach maturity. And don't get me started on bread. I mean, seriously, those are pictures from my house. My wife has gotten into a bread baking mood and it's, she can get sourdough, sourdough starter. And don't tell her this, but I really do like it. And she's really good at it. That's not surprising. But I do like to give her fits about it too, especially in the beginning, the several weeks she'd have to get up. Oh, I forgot to feed my starter every night, every night. <laughs> Every night it had to grow and there were special instructions on how to do everything and I would ask her things like did you need to rock it to sleep tonight or what about does it need to take a ride around the block in the car before you go to bed but when she made the bread there would be several steps do this and do that and even after the came it came out of the oven and it would be smelling so good she would say don't touch it <laughs> for several hours don't touch it I don't always abide by that one it needed to rest before cutting. The parable of the seed and the yeast are a reminder of two things. It takes time for things to grow. It takes time for things to grow, but in the proper conditions, growth is inevitable. Add some yeast to that dough back then and it would take over the entire loaf and a seed planted in the right soil would just grow. It just takes time and that's not what we wanna hear, we want it now. And not only do we not want it now, but the other important part of this is not just that it takes time, it's that it's a process. It's a process. We want a transaction. I do this for you, God, you do this for me. I say this prayer, you do that for me. God is not a transactional God. You know that? God is not a transactional God. God is a process God. Amen. Isn't that right? And sometimes we want to short circuit the process. And let me just tell you, God is more interested in you and the process than he is about the transaction. Oh, what we miss when we try to bypass the process. Another problem I see. Hey, what was that? Distraction. You're confused for a moment, right? You're like, what is he talking about? <laughs> Sometimes people will come up to me after church on a Sunday and they'll apologize and they'll say, oh, my child was crying. And I'll say, really? I didn't hear it. Something about being up here, I can be hyper-focused. You guys can do a lot of stuff that I can ignore. Praise God. Um, but during the week, if you work with me, I know I drive Amy and Liz nuts. I'll start something midway through uh, my squirrel. And there I go. And I'll start, to, oh, squirrel, and there, I mean, I can just pick up and move on. I, and I think about my faith like that, too. Anybody ever tried to just sit in silence and pray? How easy is that? How many of you say, oh, it's so easy? Nope. How many of you go, hardest thing I think I ever tried to do is sit in silence and pray and keep focus? Amen. 
Me too. Me too. These guys in these parables, these first parables Jesus talked about, the treasures, they couldn't get distracted. Singularly focused on the treasure, obtaining the treasure. They devoted themselves to it. I heard on a podcast recently how one of the dangers in our society is we don't let kids get bored anymore. And I thought, hmm, that's interesting. Between the school day and organized athletics and tablets and technology, kids seldom get bored. And you know what boredom does? Leads to creativity. Leads to openness. <laughs> and what do these things right here do? Man, just keep us from ever being bored. We are so stinking distraction that we get off the real priority. There are other problems I think I could have mentioned. The problem of convenience. We don't want anything that put us out at all, ever. Or the problem of disappointment where I've tried this once before and God let me down, but we'll, we've got enough. The real meaning of this parable is all about response. My response, your response. What are we willing to give up for the kingdom? The real difficulty with these stories isn't in understanding them, but in living them. And I, I tell Amy, I was telling Amy this week, I said, sometimes I lay in bed at night and I'll sit there and that's in the dark room with a quiet ceiling fan, you know, turning. Those are really cool moments for me. I don't know about you. I was in a class one time and the teacher, a spiritual formation class, and he was talking about the value of that moment, just saying that that's when you're most least distracted probably the easiest time God has to speak to you. And so in the morning, right when I'm waking up, at night, right before sleeping, I, pr I try to pay attention to what's going through my mind. And I'll sit there at night and just lay and think about what I'm going to say to you on Sunday. It's an exciting life, I know. <laughs> <laughs> and I was thinking this week, I thought, why don't we do this? Why don't we do this? What keeps us from this? Honestly, I think there's a couple of things. I think number one, we have so experienced counterfeit faith and counterfeit kingdom that when we look at it, it's not worth giving everything for. It is garbage. And so we look at it and we go, I'll take the ad on Jesus. Or we just don't want it. We don't believe it. It's just not that important to us. These are the thoughts that while I'm laying in bed, we're selfish. We want it, but after I get what I want. We hear the words of Jesus talking about serve others, the last will be first and first will be last. Love your enemies, turn, your other, turn the other cheek, all that stuff. Be humble, be generous, those things that Amy mentioned last week. And our mentality really is, I'll get there, if I have time after taking care of me. Because to be fair, all that in our own physical sense doesn't sound very appealing. I'm concerned that we don't actually buy into the hype of what Jesus is saying. It's not just hype, it's the message. I, don't, I, I just don't know that we believe it. It sounds good on a Sunday morning, but it sounds a lot less appealing on Monday morning. Being a real and authentic selves is more important than sacrifice. My truth, 
My favorite statement. Oh, own your truth, my truth. My truth is more appealing than the way, the truth, and the life of Jesus. The natural order, the scientific method, those things I can see, I can feel, I can touch, they are much more believable than what these words a man said 2,000 years ago. I want to hear this message. I need to hear this message because within me, there is a growing discontentment. Not with you guys, I love you guys. <laughs> but there's a growing discontentment in my faith with organized religion, with doing same things over and over and over again. This holy discontentment within me is desiring more. I want the treasure of the kingdom of God. I want Jesus. I want the power of the Holy Spirit lived in and through my life. I don't want this faith to be an add-on activity. I don't want church to just be a community when it's convenient. I want to give and live generously. I want to stand for injustice. Not just when others, enough others have stood that my voice won't be heard, but I want to stand when it matters. I read this week, somebody said, we want a little of the kingdom to hedge our bets, but you cannot hedge your bets with the kingdom. What Jesus is saying urges us to abandon what we thought was the focus of life and focus entirely on what God is doing with the kingdom. And what's interesting is it doesn't matter where you find it, whether you're seeking it or stumble upon it. The question is, what will you do once you see it? And I am convinced once we see, once we taste, once we touch, once we experience the true kingdom of God, we will find ourselves willing to reorient our entire lives for it. Because it's just that good. Now please don't misunderstand me. I know these are hard words. They're for me first. hope you know that. <laughs> and I'm not looking at you to say, do more. Try harder. <laughs> because that's not what Jesus is talking about. Jesus isn't saying even spend where you, you know, change where you spend your Sunday mornings. He's talking about changing your life. And we've been saying it for weeks. It's about surrender, repentance, changing our mind and direction and realizing that nothing we are holding on to is worth more than what Jesus is inviting you into. So the question is, is are we willing to do a little reorientation, to repent, to change our direction, to see the kingdom, not just as a treasure, but a treasure worth getting, a treasure worth being a part of. Are we willing to move beyond this sterile, organized faith experience to cry out for the transcendent God who made it all, who loves and cares for you, who is pursuing you, and look at inside and say, you know what? Holy Spirit, I am yours. Stop chasing the counterfeit treasures and feeling the disappointment every time it lets us down. I was reading Ecclesiastes this week. Man, if you want to be depressed, read that. Where everything is meaningless, surrendering together and finding meaning and purpose in the life that Jesus is inviting us into. In Acts chapter 2, we read this. It says, Peter said, He's talking to the crowd. He says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of sin, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
I feel like sometimes my life is a little lax, a little lacking on the Holy Spirit. I want the treasure. How about you? Yeah. I want the treasure. Whatever it takes, whatever the cost. So just right now, just close your eyes and I'm just, just pray with me. God, we need you. We want you. We desire you. There's so many things screaming for our attention that look to us like they're worth so much. But God, we want you. We want your kingdom. And so God, our prayer this morning is Holy Spirit, breathe on us. Fill us, speak to us, renew us. God, give us a glimpse this morning of your kingdom. Because God, I know if we get that glimpse, we'll move heaven and earth to get it.